my son Michael is very, very different to me. Now, we get on great. We're, we have a laugh. He's, he's my best little buddy. And, you know, but he's, here's one of the ways he's very different to me. He can cook, right? He actually is very good at baking. And, he, and not only can he, he enjoys it. He will, he, he, Becky as well, Becky will just, they'll just whip out stuff from the kitchen, they'll pull stuff and they'll, anyway, we were just away for a couple of days up in the Highlands and Michael said, I want to make scones. So Angie said, sure. So she got all, all the ingredients in and he, he just, without any me- recipe, he just, out of memory, just put all the things together, sieved it, did the, I don't, I don't even know what he did. Anyway, it came out as perfect scones, amazing. I was thinking, that's incredible, Michael. How did you do that? See, he has a gift that I really don't have. But, but I am told by people who make cakes that if you get the mix right, the thing will rise, yeah? I guarantee you, if I tried making a cake, it would not rise. It would kill people. It would really would not be a good experience. But you get the mix right and the thing rises. Same with church. You get the right ingredients. You get the mix just right, and then the thing will rise, Today, if you want a title for what we're talking about, we're in the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at five hallmarks of authentic church. Five ingredients, which if they're mixed in, in the right proportions, all together, the thing will rise. So first of all, help me. I've got a whiteboard over here. Shout out, just words. Words that you think will be to do with the five ingredients. I I don't care if we come up with ten here. Give me words that you think are essential in the mix of the ingredients that cause a church to be successful. Give us a word. Wow, all at once there. So prayer, I heard. Fellowship. Ah, you guys are coffee. You know know that's where I'm going. Fellowship. What? Lod. Is that love or God? Love. God, okay, yeah. Gospel, okay, that's great. Yep. Miracles, I like that. Faith, there's another one over here as well. Faith. Passion, I like that for shout. Huh? Patience. Patience, I like that. Direction, yep. Discipleship. Discipleship, excellent. Oh, very good. I like that, Derek. How'd you spell that? Per- per- you wouldn't even know if I spelled it wrong anyway, because I write in tongues, as you can see. Wait, no, I, I know that how you spell it. I just don't know what I've said. P e r s e v e r a n c. Okay, anyway, there. Um, so there's some good ingredients. You mix it all together, and it's going to rise. Let, let, let's just take you to some ingredients the Bible gives us. This is Acts chapter two. Five hallmarks of authentic church. As we read the verses, see if you can see the five I'm going to bring out. Okay, so here it is. Acts chapter two. At verse 41 onwards, it says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's an awesome passage. It paints a picture in your soul of what could be, of what to some degree we experience and of also what of some degree we long for. It is a picture that, and God does this, God gives us his words because words creates worlds and his word is painting a picture in our soul because 
he's showing us the direction that he wants us to go to. So five things, and do you know what? Actually, you could pull out lots more. I'm just going to give you five that I think jump out the page and speak to me. Number one, a learning community. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's interesting that God created the word, the world, with the word, didn't he? He said, let there be. He created with words. And it's interesting that the, the church was birthed in a sermon. The apostle Peter stands up, preaches words, and the first church was birthed. That, that was just the verses before these verses where we were. So the, the church was birthed with words. And teaching is such a core issue when it comes to the local church. Someone said, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're a nice person. You know, that's kind of common. People would say that. But the truth is, is that's salvation by works. A nice person doesn't get you saved. The thief dying beside Jesus on the cross wasn't a nice person before or after believing in Jesus. But he entered paradise because he was a believer. It's faith that saves us. It's believing the right things about God and about truth that will save us. So actually, truth is essential. And truth becomes the basis for our unity. Because we're agreeing, we're singing off the same song sheets, we're moving together as one based on truth. Across town, just after this meeting, I'll, I know a couple of you are going across as well, we're doing According to the Pattern, which is our it's official membership course. Really, it's a discipleship course in which we teach, here's the foundations we're building on as a church. And this is a unifying truth. So we're singing off the same song sheet, we're building in the same foundation. Truth is really important. And the Bible says they were devoted themselves. Say devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You imagine you were one of these 3,000. So just let's go back 2,000 years. Who are these people? Well, if you read the verses before, you discover, in fact, go further back. Jesus Christ, who is God, came into this world, died for sinners on the cross, rose again on the third day, appeared to his disciples. He commissioned them go change the world, but wait until you've got power. They waited for the Holy Spirit to come. Day of Pentecost came, God filled them powerfully with the Holy Spirit. On that day, huge crowds gathered because of the phenomena. There was a sound of a wind. They heard people speaking in other languages. And Peter stood up, preached to the thousands who were gathered. And the Bible says that 3,000 became believers. That's, and that's where our verses come in, okay? Who were those 3,000? Well, if, if you look at it, they were people from all different surrounding regions who were devout Jews. These were very religious people. They understood Judaism. They knew the Old Testament. Imagine you'd been a devout Jew. You'd believed that the Messiah was coming. You'd understood the prophecies. You'd lived a very ritualistic, very dedicated, faithful life. And now all of a sudden you were putting your faith in Jesus who you suddenly realized we crucified him, but he's the Messiah. He's the Lord and I owe him everything. And you give your entire life to him. Imagine you'd done that. How hungry would you be? Imagine all you'd known was Judaism. No wonder they were on the edge of the seats. They were, the Bible says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because we've got to know about this Jesus, this one that we rejected. He's actually Lord and Messiah. He's actually the Savior of the world. He's God in the flesh. They want to know about him. They were eager and hungry to learn. And by the way, eagerness to learn is one of the hallmarks of true conversion. It's an indicator that someone got saved. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, like, new like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the words that you may grow, you may by it grow in respect to your salvation. Hunger for God's words. There was a thing going on in a newspaper in, in the editor's column and someone wrote, wrote in and said, you know, I'm, I'm really decided, I've gone to church for decades and I've decided I'm no longer going to go to church. I've been, I reckon, for about three decades to church. I must have heard about 3,000 sermons in that time and I've decided that I'm no longer going to go to church because for the life of me, I cannot remember even one of those sermons. And to be honest, I think the pastor's wasting his time and I think, I'm wasting my time, so after all these years, I'm going to stop going to church. Anyway, this, this, this caused a little cascade of correspondence on the, 
on the editor's column, and eventually the, the, the killer blow came from one of the writers who wrote in and said, I've been married now for 30 years. In that time, my wife has cooked me thousands of meals. To the, for the life of me, I cannot remember one of the menus that she has ever created me, but I just know that I would be dead if she hadn't created me all these meals. And she said, I also know that if I hadn't connected with the local church, I would be spiritually dead. And the truth is this, at church, sometimes you're going to hear new stuff, sometimes you're going to hear wonderful old stuff. I don't care. I love Bryn Jones, who was a famous apostle who's no longer alive. He was, I guess, a father to our church. He said, and I always remember it, he said that I can learn from the youngest believer. He said, you put a young believer in front of me, the newest believer, get them to share something about Jesus, I can learn from anyone. And I want us to have that humble, teachable heart in this church that we, no matter who it is, no matter how deep the truth is, all truth is nourishment to our souls. I don't care if it's a burger or meat and veg or if it's like caviar on slices of posh stuff with other stuff and that stuff. I don't care. It's, it, it's, it's nourishment to our souls. Let's be teachable, hungry people like these Jews in the early church. Never lose your hunger. What did they teach? So what did the apostles teach? Well, think about what Jesus told them to teach. Matthew 28. Jesus, having risen from the dead, he commissioned the disciples and he said, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to, what does it say? Teaching them to, oh, here's here. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So it wasn't just enough to give information to the disciples. This is actually, you wouldn't be a disciple if you're just gathering information. You're just someone who gathers information. A disciple literally means, it's the Greek word that means a learner. It's someone who's taking on board truth and embodying that truth. So, I don't, so in, the, in the last few months, we've been teaching on marriage and on dating and on sex and all these things, right? Here's the truth. If you've just heard that and accumulated information, but you, you're still a a stupid husband, a crazy husband, a, a mistreating his wife husbands, then you're not a disciple of Jesus. If, if, you're, if you're still being crazy in the way you're dating, in, you're still fooling around in a way that's inappropriate before God, then you're not a disciple. You've heard information, but it hasn't changed your life. If, if, if in your parenting, you've heard truths from the Bible and it hasn't impacted, actually hasn't tangibly changed the way you interact with your kids, even though you know fully what the Bible says, then you're not a disciple. Jesus said, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So that's exactly what the apostles were doing with these new believers. They were teaching them to obey everything Jesus had commanded them. And if you do that, Jesus said, you're building on a good foundation. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. You build on God's words. You literally live your life according to what God says. You're building on a solid foundation. And Jesus, you know the parable, it goes on and he says, you're like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the storms came and the floods rose and the winds beat against that house, but it didn't move because it had a solid foundation. He said, the foolish man on the other side is the person who hears my words but doesn't put them into practice. You're like a foolish person. When the winds come, and you're like a person who builds his hand on this life on the sand, the house on the sand. And the winds come and the storms beat against the house and it crumbles, can't handle it because there's no foundation. The truth is this, it's not the storms that ruin people's lives. It's the lack of foundation that ruin people's lives. Everyone experiences the storms. But the truth is, if you build on the foundation of God's words, you, I can't promise you a storm-free life, but I can promise you a storm-proof life. You'll live in such a way that you'll be on a solid foundation. No matter what comes, you've built your life on God's eternal words. You're solid no matter what comes. And it says they devoted themselves, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I think, I think that's really important. They weren't a leaderless crowd. Some people say, church, you know, it can just be a crowd of people no leadership's necessary, no structure's important. 
But that's not what you see in the book of Acts. In fact, it's not what you see here, but right through the book of Acts and right through the New Testament, you discover that essential for a local church wasn't just a gathering of people who happened to believe in God, but was God-appointed leadership. And what you see here is the apostles were there. And I believe it represents not just teaching, but they were under authority. And I believe when you are under authority, you have authority. That's the truth. You're under authority, you've got authority. Some people say about destiny, well, destiny is it a denomination. We say no. Is it an independent church? We say no. And I could say to you, so the church at Corinth, was it a denomination or was it an independent church? And you would say the church at Corinth, no, neither. I would say what we are is what they were in the New Testament. They were part of an apostolic movement where apostles who circulated among the churches and prophets and evangelists, pastors, teachers and leaders and accountability and there was elders in local churches and there was deacons in local churches and it was built in a biblical way. There was a structure, but it was not a structure added to, you know, for the sake of structure, but a structure in order to facilitate life, just like a tree has a structure and then the life happens around the tree. But nevertheless, the structure is important. So they were a learning community. Secondly, they were a loving community. Say, love. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to fellowship. That's amazing. They devoted themselves to fellowship. It goes on in verse 44 and 45 to give us a little glimpse of what that looked like. And this is so unwestern living. This is so not Western materialism. This is so not individualism. This is so bad for the introverts among us, aged. <laughs> this is so radically different to what our society says. Verses 44 to 45, it says, and all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold the property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. I mean, that's just radical. Now, let me just give you a little bit of context, not to in any way lighten the blow, but to let you understand the context this was coming in. These were Jewish people. This was at a time of a festival. Jewish people gathered on Jerusalem three times a year for three different festivals, for the Feast of Weeks, uh, or Pentecost, uh, for the Passover, and I think it was for Tabernacles. Three times in the year they descended upon Jerusalem for festivals. Sometimes anything up to a million people would be turning up in Jerusalem. There were not enough hotels, premier inns, bed and breakfasts to accommodate everyone. So what would actually happen is historians would tell us that typical Jewish people, residents of Jerusalem, would open their homes to their fellow Jews who were coming from far and wide. And so this idea of hospitality was ingrained in their culture at least three times in the year. You would open up your home. If you, if you were a resident of Jerusalem, that was just par for the course. You understood this would happen. Now what's happened right here is that 3,000 people who had descended upon Jerusalem for the festival have now got saved. They've become believers in Jesus and they need to get established in this new faith they've got. So they're not just going to up and off. They're going to stay in Jerusalem and devote themselves to the apostles' teaching because they need to grow in this truth. So Johnny, who's come to visit you in your house, is now going to be staying around for a bit longer than just the festival. So all of a sudden, we have a bit of an economic crisis because food's running out, things are a bit tighter. And what landowners were doing is landowners were selling property and saying, this is an important season. I need to underwrite the costs of this season. So an example, our church in Munich just now, Destiny Munich, has been inundated with refugees. As you know, the refugee crisis, a lot of southern Germany's got many refugees coming into it. Munich, Destiny Munich has got this huge opportunity with refugees. So what Destiny churches are doing just now is we're, and you're welcome to be part of this. Go on the weekly email, you'll see the just giving link. You can give to that. That money can go and right, we've got an opportunity just now. This is an opportunity to be a blessing and show the love of Christ. Let's in this moment make a difference with our money. And it's exactly what was going on in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not I'm not taking away from that that we shouldn't do this. We should do this. But I'm saying the principle remains today that working will be different in every given situation. Each situation will be different. 
Each opportunity for generosity and each opportunity for showing love will change from culture to culture and generation to generation. What has been put in front of you? Now respond to that and live in that way. But the radical love that they showed is exactly the same radical love that God's calling us to show each other. Now it uses a word here. It says they devoted themselves to fellowship. Say fellowship. In the Greek language, it's the Greek word koinonia. Say koinonia. Maria and Vasilis, help me say koinonia. That's the way. <laughs> say it like that, kinonia. Kinonia. Okay, kinonia. Thank you. And literally it means, am I right, something shared. It means something shared. So when you think of fellowship, think instead something shared. So let's just think about that for a moment. Something shared. What were they sharing? Okay. They shared Jesus. They just got saved. They had the same Savior. Jesus had died for them on the cross, risen again, and they had collectively believed in Jesus. They were now born again, heaven bound. God was their Father. Everything had changed. And all of a sudden, they went from being people who happened to be Jewish people to all of a sudden, you're my brother. You're my sister. We have the same Father. Everything changed. They had God in common. They had salvation in common. Furthermore, this common sharing of Jesus resulted in a common sharing practically among them. Their devotion to Jesus became devotion to others, and that's always how it goes. Now, in the Bible, Jesus was a friend of sinners, yeah? You know you should be a friend of sinners. You should all be friends of sinners. But you can't have fellowship with sinners. You can only have fellowship with believers, because you share Jesus, but you can be a friend of sinners. A.W. Tozer said this, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord because by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which they all must individually bow. And the reality is that this devotion to God, this sharing God in common resulted in them sharing with each other. And you think about that right through the Bible. You think when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God. And then in the same breath, he says, and the second is love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's almost like he couldn't just say the one by itself in isolation. It had to have an outworking. You can't just, oh, I love God, but stuff the world. It won't go with Jesus. Jesus said, if you're going to love God, you will love other people. It will automatically happen. The truth is this, it's inevitable that generosity and love are in the Christian community. It's absolutely inevitable. And the reason is because of who our leader is. If we're following Jesus, then it is absolutely inevitable that we will love each other. Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see, it is not inevitable that atheists will love each other. I'm not saying atheists don't love each other, but I'm just saying to you that Richard Dawkins and Hitchens and Darwin and Mao and Hitler, who was inspired by evolutionist thinking, they're not people who motivate you to love other people. It's not inevitable in some other religions that you will love. But if you follow Jesus, you will love. You can follow Jesus and not love. If you're not loving and you're claiming to follow Jesus, then we question you're following Jesus. Because Jesus loved. Jesus loved radically. And therefore, Christianity globally is known for the vast majority of aid organizations. Healthcare didn't exist before Christianity. Hospitals didn't exist before Christianity. That education system, the way we know it, did not exist before Christianity. Orphanages were virtually an invention of Christianity. Why? Because Jesus Christ... He condescended himself. He came from the throne. He left aside the riches and he loved humanity. It's incredible. Uh, one of the emperors, Emperor Julian, 
who also appeared in Madagascar, <laughs> one of the Roman emperors. He once commented in a letter to his pagan friend, and he said this, we can't stop these Christians. The reason they're so popular is that the Jews take care of the Jewish poor. The Greeks take care of the Greek poor. The Romans take care of the Roman poor, but the Christians take care of them all. They, the Christians, one of the reasons historians agree, one of the reasons that Christianity so ex expanded was the radical way they loved. They also commented on the incredible way they died. Pagans just couldn't get their head around how they could be in the arena while Christians would be eaten by lions and they would be singing songs and full of joy. They could not get, how can they die so well? That messed with their head and impressed them. They were also impressed by the way they were so inclusive. Because other religions, you know, if you're up in the hills, you worship the God of the hills. If you're up down in the ocean, you worship the God of the ocean. But in Christianity, it, it was different even to Judaism, where only Jewish people got in. But with Christianity, it was open to all peoples. It was such a radical movement. Love for your enemies. Again, you follow Jesus, you will love your enemies. Someone once said of Jesus about Christianity, Christianity is the only world religion in which God became a man and died for his enemies to make them his bride. Everything about that is radical. That God became a man, died for his enemies, that they could become his bride. Everything about that is radical. You cannot be a follower of Jesus without loving human beings. Uh, wife Anne is a primary teacher, and every so often she'll work alongside a probationer. And one of the, the girls she was working alongside uh, last year, she, nice, nice lass, got on great with her and got into a conversation and she was saying, so what are you doing this weekend? She was saying, oh, I'm doing X, Y, and Z on Saturday, but Sundays I leave free because uh, that's a special, you know, I, I do something Sunday morning. And Angie thought, ah, Christian. So she said, that, that's good, are you, are you a Christian? And she said, no, 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 I'm an atheist. I go to this thing called the Sunday gathering. Um, and so they've started, atheists have started this atheist church in Edinburgh. So we're doing location launches there. They're doing location launches too. And so Angie uh, got into a conversation with her and she said, yeah, yeah, we, we, we don't believe in God, but we find that we, we don't need to believe in God to do nice things to people. And, and that's true. We don't need to believe in God to do nice things to people and to be good citizens. And we meet together and we sing songs and all that stuff. And, and, and she said, Angie, what do you do? I said, well, me and her husband started a church. <laughs> we believe in God. And anyway, she, she went on and said, yeah, yeah, we, we do things like food banks and all that stuff. And I said, that's great. Angie's saying, oh, we, we do the same as well uh, at our church. And then this, this lady said, the only problem is we find it doesn't really work with volunteers. We find we, you know, it doesn't run on volunteers. <laughs> I think right there, well, I understand that there is human common decency in human beings. I understand that. And I believe that's because we've been created in the image of God. But you have no fuel in your engine unless you have the example of Jesus Christ. And not just the example of Jesus Christ, but we don't just have a great example. He's come to live within us. And when Jesus comes to live within you, you're going to have to fight real hard against him to not show love to someone else. When you see a need that God is, he will lead you to meet needs. And you're going to have to fight against him for that to not happen. Because you have a need, new default position the king of glory has taken up residence in your life. And just as he showed love in his earthly ministry, his work continues. That's the whole thing about Acts. It's all about the work of God through his people. He's in you. He's going to love through you. And if he's not, maybe he's not in you. Amen. I remember when the last week of mom's life, when she was on earth, the church, I was Destiny, Destiny Church in Glasgow. I was a student there. Me and my mum went along there. And in the last week of mum's life, the church turned up, took our washing away, provided all our meals, didn't just take our washing away, also did our washing and gave it back irons. It was incredible. And, but the, what, what blew me away was not just that week, not just that month, but for the next two or three months that continued to happen. Even today, so my dad's now 88 years old. My dad never became part of Destiny Church in Glasgow. Even today, dad will still at least weekly, if not monthly, get a phone call from someone from the church to see how he's doing. That's mental. That's mental. My, my uncle John, who's an atheist, I got on great with him. 
But I don't think I'm against atheists. I love atheists. I just deeply disagree with the philosophy. I deeply love them, though. My Uncle John, he said, you know, he said, if this is church, because he looked at how the church cared for the family during that time of crisis, he said, if this is church, if this is what Christianity is about, then I am interested. So the church has grown. Here we are, we've got, you know, obviously this is a smaller gathering, which gives you opportunities. But the church has just over 1,100 people connecting with it that we care for. Now, the truth is this, when you get to a certain size of church, ball is in your core in terms of connection. You've got to make it happen. Don't, don't, wait, don't wait for someone to come and talk to you. You go and talk to them. You go find a small group. Get involved. Don't, don't wait for it to happen for you. Get involved. Make it happen yourself. Become part of the fellowship. Be fellowship to others. Let me just ask you really quickly, just throw out seven things. Give me seven words that would describe for you your experience in small group. If you've been in a small group in the church, and we encourage you, don't just come on a Sunday, connect with a small group through the week. If you've been in a small group, throw out just a few things, words that have ways that your life has been positively impacted through the interactions in a small group, devoting yourself to fellowship. Give me some words. Family. Whoa, all at once. <laughs> Family. What does that look like for you, Sam? Oh, it's so different. It's like George and Betty, like the, the head, they're like mom and dad that we look up to. And it's just a whole when you come and you can be yourself and with all your um, faults and shortcomings and you're still accepted and you're still loved. And even when you can't pray for yourself, there's people that are praying for you. That's it. It's amazing. That's it. Family. Thanks, Sam. A few other words all came at once there. Come on. Growth. How have you grown in small group, Jude? people who are different to you sometimes it's society it's easy to hang out with people who are the same as you it's a small group you're put together with a motley crew of people who are often different to you different age group different social class different uh, ethnicity you know different backgrounds and it's such a rich experience awesome you don't get that anywhere else in society another couple of words learning, learning. you grow you learn stuff truths That's a good answer. <laughs> One thing I'm aware of, so Tico and, um, and, and Dara, they, they, these guys, blessed Emperor Matilda and, and the family with a carpet for the new house, is that right? And they, and they just, they in your small group? Yeah. Just, you know, moved house, a going away present, have a carpet for your house. I just love that. So just simple things. Fellowship. The Bible says they devoted themselves to fellowship. Uh, and listen, I, I don't want you to have theoretical Christianity. Church shouldn't be like a snooker table where the balls come out of the pockets and clink off each other on a Sunday, then they all go back into their own separate pockets. God calls us to do life together. And I'm not saying at the expense of not knowing people who are outside the church. Do both. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but he also had fellowship with believers. You've got to have both. You've got to have both. Be like Jesus. You have to love God's people. <laughs> if Jesus is in you, he will be wanting to love God's people through you. Let that happen. Get, put yourself in the environment where it forces you uncomfortably to make that happen. So number one, learning community. Number two, a loving community. Number three, they were a covenant community. Say covenant. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the breaking of breads. Now again, put yourself in the feet of in the shoes of those or the sandals of of those three three thousand new jewish believers why was this so important to them why was breaking bread so important to these three thousand jewish believers let me give, let me suggest to you that all of their understanding their whole world had revolved around a sacrificial system that for generations 
they had offered bulls and rams and goats and anything else that moved to somehow deal with their sin because sin is ugly and that's what it requires to be saved. They needed to every festival, every constantly sacrifice. And now they were blown away with this truth. Hebrews 10.10, they were blown away that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. All of a sudden, they suddenly realized the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away my sin. But God's done something radical for me. God's become a man. He's died in my place. His blood takes away all my sin and makes me declared righteous before a holy God. Now, those Jews were blown away. So do you wonder why they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread? This, I mean, that's all they could do. They couldn't sacrifice anything. All they could do was constantly remember the sacrifice that was made for them. In 1946 in Los Alamos, there was a scientist, well-known now, called Louis, uh, Louis uh, Slotin. And Louis Slotin, was, uh, he worked with um, uranium, and he was one of the people behind the scenes uh, working on the atom bomb. And in one of the experiments in the build-up to the South Pacific um, tests that they did, he, he would take two hemispheres of uranium and he would bring them together and just before they um, fused and went into a reaction, he would separate them with a screwdriver. On this, he'd done this experiment multiple times over. On this particular occasion, there were other people in the room. As he was doing this experiment, the two hemispheres came dangerously close together. He put the screwdriver in to separate them as he usually did, but this time the screwdriver slipped and the two hemispheres fused and a reaction started. The room was filled with a blue haze and instead of ducking in that moment, Lewis Slotton jumped, grabbed the hemispheres and with his hands ripped them apart, knowing in doing so, in doing so he saved the lives of the other people in the room, but in doing so he condemned himself to death. Nine days later, he died in agony because of the radiation exposure that he had. And the truth is this, that not just a man, but a man who happened to be fully God came into this world, died for our sins. He died so we wouldn't need to die. He took the exposure to sin that if we were to take it, we would be damned for eternity away from the presence of God in hell. And yet Jesus died in our place to rescue us from our sins and how could we not on a consistent, everyday basis remember him and be grateful to him and thank him? And that's why they broke bread. Breaking bread keeps the death and the resurrection of Jesus in the center of your community. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, he's not talking about an evangelistic meeting here. He's talking about in the context of believers gathering. Whenever you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death. Not like Billy Graham in an evangelist moment, but as believers to each other. You're reminding each other, you're saying, this is how we have life. Death brought us life. This death and resurrection, this body broken, this bloodshed has made me righteous, has made me acceptable before the holy God for all eternity, and you too, and we have this shared in common. It was an amazing thing. And I want you as a church to never lose the wonder of the importance of breaking bread. At the end of this message, we'll take time to break bread. But let me just give you a couple of encouragements. Did you know that you can break bread in your homes? You don't have to have uh, the priest, right? Father Peter. You don't, I don't have to be there, okay? You, all you need to have is bread and grape juice. We have a rule we don't involve alcohol in anything we do as a church, simply because many have come from an alcoholic background, so we don't want to put a stumbling block on the way. So we have grape juice. Don't use like blackcurrant juice or like red food coloring water, or, right? Stick with grape juice. Let's keep it as close to, because I think grape's symbolic, okay? So let's make it grape juice. Get grape juice, get bread. It, does, it can be wholemeal. It can be seedy bread. It could be like Lidl's freshly baked rolls. It can be anything you want, okay? It doesn't need to be taken to Jerusalem and, and, or the Vatican and be blessed or anything like that. You can just use something from Lidl. And, you can, and what you do is just in that moment, I mean, I'm being flippant, but I don't want you to be flippant. I want you to t- treat it as specialness. Get, take a moment to say thank you. Maybe when you've got each other around for meals at each other's houses, 
why not just bring a bread roll out and say, hey, listen, let's, we don't, I know we don't usually do this, but after our biryani, let's just break bread and break bread and have some grape juice and say, Jesus, thank you that we're brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ because of what you have done. Small groups, if you're a small group leader, please, on a weekly basis, at least on a regular basis, break bread consistently. Let, let it be a constant reminder with gratitude of what Jesus has done. He is the foundation. He is the basis for our interacting. And here's the thing. When you're breaking bread, you are reminding yourselves that we're in connection with him and we're also in connection with each other. And if you're not in connection with each other, then you resolve it. There should be, no one should be hurt in local church. No one. Now, people do get hurt in local church. People have left this local church hurt by me. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And maybe... I've hurt them because I was a sinner. Or maybe they perceived they were hurt and I hadn't done anything wrong, they just perceived it. Either way, it can be resolved. I can repent if I have sins. They can figure something new out and think, okay, I got it wrong, forgive me. Either way, we can resolve that. Let's break bread. That should be how it is in local church. No one should leave hurt. No one. Say, no one should leave hurt. So they were a learning community, they were a loving community, they were a covenant community, and at the end will break bread. Number four, they were a praying community. It says they devoted themselves, verse 42, they devoted themselves to prayer. Say prayer. prayer. <clears throat> what were they praying about? Okay, again, take yourself back. You were one of the 3,000 Jews. You just suddenly realized this Jesus, who you may be seen in the streets of Jerusalem at a previous festival, this Jesus is none other than God who died on the cross for your sins. What are you praying about? Let me suggest to you they were praying about two things. They were praying for the purpose of getting to know him who they hadn't known. They were praying to get to know God. God, I thought I knew you, but I realized I totally missed you. I love you now, and I know you now, and thank you. So their praying would have, been involved, would have had lots of singing involved. Their praying would have had lots of a joy involved. And if you read on in the verses, it says they met with gladness and sincerity of heart. There was a lot of joy. There was singing. There was worship. They were grateful to know Jesus and, and they loved the adventure of getting to know him. I love praying, not because it's a religious duty. I love praying because I love God. Spend time getting to know him. I also suggest to you, if you were one of those Jews and you'd suddenly realized that Jesus was the Messiah, here's how you'd have been praying. You would have been praying, I love you and I love getting to know you. But Lord, I love the people around me and so many thousands don't yet know you. Would you save them? So I reckon they were praying those prayers. Here's the truth. If I, let me illustrate it this way for you. There, there, was a, there was an explorer going through the jungle and he came across a little pygmy. You know a pygmy? A little person. A pygmy beside a carcass of a huge dead lion. And the, the, hunt, the, the explorer said, did you kill that lion? Little pygmy? And little pygmy said, yeah, I did. He said, how did you kill such a big lion being such a small pygmy? And the pygmy said, it, with my great club. That's amazing. He said, you must have a really big club to kill a lion like that. And he said, yeah, there's about 60 of us. <laughs> and, and the truth is this. Some of you will get that afterwards. The truth is this. How on earth does that small gathering of believers go on to change the world? I'll give you some quotes from the book of Acts. These men have turned the world upside down. Here's another quote from the book of Acts. You filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Imagine that said of us, filled Edinburgh with our teaching. Imagine that impact. Okay, let me give you another quote from the book of Acts. This, and the city was divided. Some sided with the apostles and some sided with the Jews. Imagine the impact was such that literally you cut the city right through the middle. 500,000 people in Edinburgh, 250,000 people agreed with Destiny Church Edinburgh, 250,000 people agreed with Richard Dawkins. Right, okay, so we split the crowd right down the middle. Imagine that, imagine the impact. How on earth do you do that? Well, we've got a really big club, and when that club happened to pray, we prayed, we called on God. How the success in the book of Acts? Because they prayed and called on God. And then finally, they were a gathering community. Say gathering. Okay, let me help you to remember this point. Say 246. Okay, and say 2020. Okay, 246. 2020. Okay, Acts chapter 2, verse 46 says, 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Say temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So where, where were they meeting? Where were they gathering? In two places. In the temple courts. Think big. The temple courts, the Herod's portico, or Solomon's portico where they gathered, it was huge. It was like multiple football pitches in scale, the court of the Gentiles. It was massive. It could accommodate, if they they weren't seated, if they were standing, you could have had tens of thousands of people accommodated in any one gathering. And the Bible says that daily they were gathering in the temple courts. That's in that forum where thousands could have gathered and from house to house. How big were houses? Well, depends where in the when Israel you go. So, some parts of Israel in the northern areas, a house would have been the size of a parking lot. Like you could have got five people in it. Other parts of that ancient world, you'd have huge houses where courtyards could have accommodated a hundred plus people. The truth is this, there is big gatherings and there is small gatherings. Some people get all caught up with, oh, it needs to be like this and small or like this. Or we don't want the big. But actually, you can't argue that from the Bible. The Bible does, in fact, the Bible doesn't even argue what, how it should be. The Bible just says they gathered. And sometimes they gathered in big settings and sometimes they gathered in small settings. And I actually think human beings need both. We need the big to be inspired. And sometimes we need the small to be intimate. We need the big because we need to reach the city. And we need the small because every individual counts. So say 246. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Another verse to remember, 2020. Acts chapter 20, verse 20. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders, says this. I have not hesitated to preach anything that would not be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house. So there we see again, big and small, publicly And if you go back to Acts 19, you see where Paul was in Ephesus, he hired a big hall of Tyrannius. That sounds big to me, right? Tyrannius, that's a big hall. I mean, if if, if it's called Diplodocus, that would be a small hall, but Tyrannius, that's a big hall, okay? And from house to house. So there was the big gatherings and there was the small gatherings. And you see that in in the early church. That's how it went. The word church means, is the Greek word ecclesia. An ecclesia doesn't mean a building, it means a gathering. It means an assembly. Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, my assembly, my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So we're not, I know, by the way, we're finalizing the lease. The lease has been agreed, the signage has been agreed. Uh, it's, It's all going forward. So the, the order of events are we've, we've, we're ready to submit building warrant. We've got paid the architects. They've done that. We're about to submit, either have or about to submit planning permission. We're hoping to have the keys either by the end of this year or the beginning of next year for Morrison's. So just so you know. So, but, it, but it's not a building. Uh, no, sorry, that is a building. But church is not a building. You're a people. And God's calling you to be a people, an ecclesia, a, an assembly. It's, it's almost like this picture of he's assembled you. Come on, gather. You, I want you to come. And every week as you gather, he'll be assembling others. And he does it strategically. Have you ever turned up at something and you think, I was meant to be here. I was meant to hear these words. I I promise you that's because God is assembling people. And he will be doing it. He will be assembling and summoning people from these areas, bringing them from those corners, from that housing scheme, that family, and then through that family, whole lot of other families, and through that key connection, all that connection. And gathering of people. God will be doing that. And it's like coal in a fire. You need to be assembled. The early church, they loved gathering. And I urge you, be a people who absolutely love gathering. Gather on a Sunday, gather in small group, love gathering. Okay, time is gone. Let me just skip ahead a couple, Marcello. Verse 47, it says this. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to the number daily those who are being saved. I started by saying, if you get the right ingredients and you mix them in, then the thing will rise. And it says here that the Lord added to the number daily those who are being saved. 
And I believe that's what God wants to do among us. That's certainly what he did in the early church. We've had seasons where it's been daily salvations in the church. We've had some times when it's been a few a week, but not daily. But God wants to do that among us. The thing rises as the right ingredients are there. But here's the thing. This is what I want to say to you. All the ingredients are important. All of them. All five. You can't just have, like with a, if my, Michael making his fruit scones, he couldn't just leave out one of the key ingredients and hope it all works. You've got to have all the ingredients there. And I know that some of the ingredients will tick some of your boxes and some of the ingredients will tick others of your boxes. But you have to understand that you've got to do them all for the thing to rise. So you could have a religious crowd of people who break bread and who go through various motions and have an aid organization and do different things, but there's no love. The thing won't rise. You could have a bunch of people who do love each other, who do break bread, who do gather, who sing songs, but no leadership. You're like a body without a skeleton. You just go, blah, blah, blah. It just doesn't work. It won't rise. You could have all the right ingredients, but you're not praying. Then you've just put on a show. You are powerless. You could have everything right, but you don't break bread. You have no foundation for your interactions. You have no basis on which you interact. You've got to have them all involved. And it says, they devoted themselves to. So here's my last ask for every single one of you in this room. I'm going to ask you something. I'm asking you, will you devote yourself? Ask yourself that just now. Will I devote myself? Will you be like the early church who devoted themselves to teaching and to being a learner? Will you devote yourselves to breaking bread? Will you devote yourself to fellowship? See, at the end, when we finish this meeting and they all have teas and coffees, don't just hang out, don't just chit-chat. Fellowship. Interact on the basis of what you might think, I don't have anything in common with them. Are you missing this completely? You've got God in common with them. So I don't care like, oh man, they're 10 years older than me. I don't care. You go and interact with them because you've got the greatest thing ever in common with them. Right, so see, when you're hanging out at the end, you're having your teas and coffees, don't just mingle and do what you would do if you were in a, a restaurant or in a family party. Do what you would only do in church. So this nationality hanging out with this nationality, this wealth hanging out with this much wealth, this ethnicity hanging out with this ethnicity, and do church. Interact on the basis of the cross. Share God in common. Let that be the common unity, the community that you experience. Devote yourself. So I'm asking you, Devote yourself to learning. Devote yourself to loving. Don't let yourself off the hook with not loving people any longer. Don't let yourself off the hook with just being an individualistic person who doesn't interact with community. Give yourself, devote yourself to be a praying person. I know you've got some of you, Emperor and Linda and others, who love praying. But all of you got to love praying. You've got to be a praying community and be a, a community who gathers. Be devoted to gathering. Get to the Sunday gathering. Get to the small group. Be devoted to gathering. Let's pray.